0: The following podcast episode contains frank discussions of sexual assault and life in prison.
1: Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer.
0: Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. Carrie Blakinger has lived her entire life on the ice, She glided on the frozen water as a young, competitive figure skater, only to have her life upended, frozen, as it were, in place in upstate New York as she coped with addiction, a drug conviction, and a stint in prison. Today, she is an investigative journalist in Texas for The Marshall Project, asking us all to freeze for a moment and focus our attention on America's prison system and the inequities that she has identified for those housed within it. She has also recently published her memoir-slash-autobiography, Corrections in Ink. She was a speaker at the State Bar's 2022 annual meeting in Houston. And in case you missed her, well, we get another chance to sit down with Carrie, hear her story, and discuss her insights on our prison system. So Carrie Blakinger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So first of all, let's let's talk really, for those who are uninitiated, what is the Marshall Project?
2: It is a nonprofit news outlet. I often describe it as being Kind of like ProPublica, but only criminal justice. That's our our whole focus is covering the criminal legal system.
0: Interesting. Okay. And how long have you been writing for that publication?
2: I've been at the Marshall Project since the start of 2020, and before that, um, some listeners might know me from my time at the Houston Chronicle.
0: Okay. So, so you've you've written a thing or two about the prison system. So, let's let's first talk about something kind of fun. Let's talk about ice skating. How did you get into that? And Talk to us about your career. I I know, I know it, it ended at one point and that, that leads us to the next part of the story, but tell us about your ice skating career.
2: Well, I got into it because my mom saw an article in the local newspaper when I was, I don't know, in probably second or third grade. And, um, she was like, Oh, this seems cool. Do you want to try taking some skating lessons? And, and so I did. And I was, you know, obsessive and a bit of a perfectionist, which is a really great uh, combination great for of skating. traits to have. Yeah, in that sport. I was going to say yeah.
0: that that's awesome. Okay, and 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 where would you grow up?
2: Uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay. So yeah, so I I got into it, and as I got better, I started skating at bigger rinks, a little further away, Hershey, then Harrisburg, then um, University of Delaware, which was at the time a major skating training center. Sure. And I skated, eventually I started skating pairs, which is where, you know, the guy throws you around and it looks all dangerous and stuff. And, um, we competed at nationals twice in, uh, when I was in, I guess, 10th and 11th grade. So, you know, so we were pretty good. Um, and skating at that point was pretty much my whole life. I left school at 10 or 11 every day to go to the rink to train and I'd be there until five or six at night. And, um, it was my whole world and, the only sort of future I could imagine, and really my whole identity right, and then you know when my pair partner decided to branch out and find another partner, I kind of fell apart because you know in skating, there's so many more girls than guys that he could find a partner the next day, and for me, it could be like weeks or months or never, and of course, skating oh, wow. careers are short, like you're not mm-hmm. you're not gonna be skating till your mid thirties right you know. We had a. I remember there was a 23 year old skater that we referred to as the old lady, and that. Okay, was, this hurts me. <laughs> this
0: hurts me as a 47 year old dude. I am, I, I am, I'm cringing. But yeah, I, I see your point.
2: So yeah, I knew that my career had a had a timeline. When I couldn't find a partner after you know a few weeks, and that turned into months, I um I fell apart, and mm. you know was very depressed, and ended up getting into drugs in you know pretty short order. And, you know, that was sort of what I did off and on for the next nine years.
0: Now, you you did get enrolled at Cornell University mm-hmm. in, for college. So were you skating at Cornell or were no. you just an ordinary mortal like the rest of us?
2: <laughs> uh, I was an ordinary mortal on heroin. Okay. Um, I, right. uh, I started college at Rutgers and, you know, took some semesters off here and there when I was sort of too deeply involved in drugs to be doing school. But then I... Hadn't, I didn't have any convictions. I had an arrest. I'd been arrested with a small amount of drugs in New Jersey, but it was dismissed. It was a pretrial intervention, did probation, got you know dismissed. So I didn't right. have any convictions, no disciplinary actions at school. Like, there was nothing on paper that would indicate how much I was struggling. Right. And um, I applied to transfer to Cornell and got into Cornell and um, you know continued getting high while I was there until I got arrested in 2010.
0: Outside of drugs, what were you? What were you majoring in? What were you thinking you might do? Like with your degree, what did you want to do as a career? Had you even given any thought to that?
2: Initially, I majored at Rutgers. I majored, I double majored in philosophy and genetics.
0: Oh wow! Um, okay, <laughs> that's eclectic. Okay, that, that, that's interesting. I, I.
2: Um, I don't know why I thought this, but I wanted to do um, patent law. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I liked science a lot and I wasn't actually good at lab work. So, you know, so I was like, okay, so I'll double major in philosophy and that'll, you know, set me up well for going to law school. That was my thought.
0: If you're not actually good at anything, being a lawyer is an amazing career path. So it's (laughs) (laughs) your, your, your head was in the right place (laughs) on that score.
2: So then when I transferred, I was, you know, I, I was a, undergrad transfer. So it was hard to double major and still graduate in a reasonably timely fashion. And I ended up switching to an English major mainly because I sort of didn't know what else to do. And that was, you know, my, my parents were, you know, strongly felt like I should be an English major for whatever reason. Um, (laughs) right. So, yeah, so I was majoring in English at Cornell and I was also working some for the student paper, and I think it was, you know, in my mind that maybe journalism would be a path, but I wasn't. I was very lost by that point. I wasn't really set on what my exact future would be.
0: Yeah. So th- this whole time, the, this whole time, you're you're doing heroin and is maybe other drugs as well. So you're. Oh, a, a, with,
2: every drug. You know, any drug you put in front of me, yeah.
0: Now, at some point, at some point, Tupperware was involved, and. So this police officer finds you with with Tupperware and from with with heroin in it. And I guess you'd walked out of your apartment and you had this Tupperware with you. What Do you know what made this police officer suddenly suspect you of something? I mean, somebody walking with Tupperware would not necessarily arouse suspicion to me. What?
2: Well, I think somebody called the cops about a suspicious person in the area from a few houses down from where I was. And. You know, the chain of events is not incredibly clear to me because as I understand it, it seems like somebody called the police from one house and I was several houses down outside, walking down the street, and yet they came up and approached me, which doesn't seem responsive to that call. So right. I'm I'm not clear. I you know, I've never asked the cop ten years right. later why did you do that? I'm I mean I'm I might have looked high. I mean I was I always looked high, I'm sure. <laughs> um <laughs> But, um, yeah, I, I don't know the exact, I don't know exactly how that transpired. I know there was a call and instead he, you know, came over and talked to me.
0: Cause in, in your book, you talk about, talk about how you're trying to hide the drugs and you're trying to get away, but he, he eventually catches on to what you're doing. And this, this, this leads to your more, shall we say, involved interaction with the criminal justice system.
2: Yeah, I um I tried to throw the drugs under the nearest car. Well, I mean, I did throw them under a car that was in the like nearby parking lot. And then someone right. spotted that occurring and went and fished them out and um, gave them to the cop. And um, then as I was getting arrested, I ate a whole bunch of pills that were in my pocket. So then I was extremely high for all of the arrest and don't really have any sort of good I mean, I have like snapshots of what I remember, but don't have a sort of good, complete narrative um, in my mind of what happened that morning. Other than that, you know, it land it ended with me in the county jail.
0: And, and eventually there's, did you plead or was there a trial involved? In-
2: oh, I pleaded, you know, the initial offer was like two to four, and then I pleaded to two and a half flat. So not, not that much of a negotiation, <laughs> you
0: did know, you, I mean, were you represented by counsel or were you doing this on your own?
2: God, I was not doing this on my own.
0: Okay. Well, that's, <laughs> I mean, if, if, if you'd been eating the pills, I'm like, okay, what did you, what did you Agree to at this point. So 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 you had did you have a public defender or who was helping? You um
2: well point? it was assigned counsel in that county. Okay. So I okay. had assigned counsel. It was a um retired federal prosecutor. He'd been an assistant USA in um in one of the districts in Virginia.
0: Hmm.
2: And it's funny because I was interviewing recently I was interviewing a state lawmaker in Virginia, sure. old dude who mentioned that he had been you know, a USA in Virginia. And I was like, Oh wow. I, I wonder if you knew, you know, and I, I said my lawyer's name. Right. <laughs> and and he was like, Yes, I hired him.
0: Wow. Okay. Such so a small world.
2: world. But anyways, so yeah. So my lawyer was um retired federal prosecutor who was just who had moved to Ithaca, New York to retire and was taking on some indigent defense work. So yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So, so so you had you had a good lawyer on your side helping you with this, it sounds like. And and so you end up with a two and a half year conviction, as it were. So you're you're, you're supposed to do two and a half years. Did you serve the full time or did you get did you get well in New
2: York on a flat bid for a nonviolent offense, you do five sevenths standardly. So okay. I did 21 months, which was um I didn't have to go in front of a parole board. It was really just like as long as I had done the you know, bare minimum of what I was recommended to do. It was, um, you know, it was just a rubber stamp that I was going to get out. So.
0: So let's start with your, with your very first night in prison after you've been convicted. What, what was the biggest surprise to you at that point? I mean, you'd, you'd never been in prison. You'd been in County jail up until this point. What was that first night like? Describe that for us.
2: Yeah, sure. So I'd been in, I'd spent about 10 or 11 months in the county jail before I got transferred. Sure. And then when I got transferred to state prison, you do the first night in in New York where all this is occurring, Mm -hmm. you do the first night in whatever the closest prison is. And then they move you to the max for like classification and reception and Mm -hmm. all that good stuff. So that first night, they had a bunch of us who weren't cleared to be in GP. It was maybe, I don't know, eight, 10 of us, something like that. Mm -hmm. And they just sort of locked us away in one wing of an old building that almost looked like it could have been a college dorm. I remember it as having like, you know, wood floors and individual um, rooms, you know, and like bunk beds in the rooms. Like it was almost like the worst college dorm ever with grading Mm -hmm. on the windows. (laughs) Right, And um, we stayed up and just sort of talked like late into the night. We were all looking out the windows at the, you know, more seasoned prisoners walking by and we were sort of, you know, talking through what prisons we each hoped we ended up at in the end. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, You know, just sort of like the, I think I said this in the book, but like the worst version of Harry Potter's sorting hat, you know? Right, right. Of course. (laughs) But then – In the morning, we, you know, they get us up and they, you know, load us on the, they were waiting to be loaded on the draft bus is what they called it. It's, you know, the chain bus here in Texas. But, you know, we're waiting Mm -hmm. for the bus to go to the prison we're going to end up at. And I'm listening to two guards talk about this woman who was in solitary and she had um, taken a dump on a mess all tray and pushed it back out the slot at the guard's. I don't know. I don't know the backstory. I don't know if she was mm-hmm. mentally ill. I don't know if she was mm-hmm. having like a mental break. Cause she'd been in solitary too long. You know, I don't, I, I don't know what the backstory is here, but in response mm-hmm. they turned off her water and the guards were talking about it. And the, one of them was like, well, what's she going to drink? And the other one was like, Oh, she can drink out of the toilet. If it's good enough for my dog, it's good enough for her.
1: Wow. And that okay. was like,
2: that was such a shocking thing for me. And I sort of, realized what that meant. Like, what that means is there are no rules in prison. Like there's all there's a rule book and all these rules you have to follow. But like, in terms of oversight, in terms of making sure that, you know, that they follow the rules that the people in charge follow the rules that you aren't abused, like, there's no one there's no one watching the hen house on that, you know, and and it's it's sort of like prison is its own little kingdom. And they can do whatever okay. they want. And mm. you don't really have any recourse. I mean, you can grieve it after the fact, but that's not gonna get you anywhere most of the time. And of course, if you grieve things, then you risk retaliation for that. So yeah, that was that was a that was a big that was a I don't know, big sort of realization for me.
0: Well, you know, for, for most of us that sitting on the outside, I think the assumption is that if you just follow the rules, you just do your time and you stay out of trouble. You'll be okay. The guards guards will treat you okay, and you're all fine. Is that is that a myth, or is there any truth to that?
2: I I feel like any lawyers who keep in touch with their clients after they go to state prison would know that's not true. Um, Mm. (laughs) You know, it it can be true. You you Mm. can be you know really lucky and just sort of get left alone, but. There's a lot of exceptions to that. Right. Like, I mean, in in Texas, for instance, I know and I wrote about this as a reporter, but I've also anecdotally heard it from many people who've done time, you know, for a long time, they had disciplinary case quotas. So it didn't matter what you were doing if the guard was like, hey, I have to write up four people this shift. They would just write you up for something. You could be Mm. doing nothing. And sometimes, you know, they might actually pick someone who was doing nothing, you know. But also, I mean, I I had friends that, you know, had been sexually assaulted in prison and they didn't do anything to bring that on. I mean, by the staff, you know. And I mean, I knew one girl who had gotten punched by another woman for invading her dreams. She didn't do anything yeah, her dreams, Yeah, that yes. And this wow. is obviously okay. an issue of mental health care. It is not the case to be clear that I was just sort of walking around expecting to be punched at any time. Like that was not generally a concern, but it is a reality that like this sort of thing can happen. You know, you have predatory, you have some predatory staff, you have some very mentally ill other prisoners, you know, you have a lot of desperate people too. You know, when you have such a resource scarce environment and things like toilet paper are such a valued commodity that I've seen, you know, women offer, um, blow jobs to guards in exchange for more toilet paper. I mean, that creates a level of desperation that like, yeah, things can happen and you can mind your business and generally have an easier time of it. But, you know, that's, that's not, a. That, that's not perfect. Like that doesn't always that's not always enough, is it
0: different for in men's prisons versus women's prisons from what you've been able to decipher in your work?
2: Yeah, totally. I, it is different. There's a I mean, there's a few ways in which it's different. and i I think that the idea that men's prisons are are so violent, like is that is true. There are many men's prisons that are just more violent. But I think it's also important to understand the ways in which women's prisons are horrible that, um, I think are easier to overlook because they aren't necessarily overt violence. There is violence in women's prisons, but it is not sure. as much. Like, I know there was um right before I got to one of the units I was at, there was a woman who had been sexually assaulted by some other women with a broom handle in the bathroom. Oh, oh, and that wow. is not common, but like we also it's knew there. It. Yeah, yeah, you knew it was there. So, like, yeah, violence does happen in women's prisons, but I think a lot more of it in in women's prisons was, you know, the, the sort of ongoing threat of sexual abuse from the staff and the mental games and humiliation, which I think are a little more pronounced in women's prison than in men's. Men's, I think the problems are more around violence, violence with each other and also the, um, you know, the staff. I mean, it's not that staff are never violent with women, but I think that staff are a lot more likely to punch a male prisoner than to punch a female prisoner. Um, I only know of one person that actually got beat up by staff in women's prisons, but I know of many men that that has happened to. And, of course, this is sort of inherently anecdotal Mm -hmm. because there's not really solid data around abuse because so much of it's not reported,
0: you know. Sure.
2: And the other, I think, big difference actually is also the way that race works out and the existence of gangs.
0: Um, so I wanted to ask about that. So yeah, please yeah. shed some light on the, on on the race issue and, and, and there, how those that are related out.
2: things, right? So like in men's prison, there's a lot more gangs. There, there really weren't gangs per se in, in women's prison, but in, in men's prison, there's gangs and, and a lot of them are, are racially based. And um, I think that makes race, race more of an issue. Like in women's prisons, you could have friends of different races and most people did. And sometimes there were um, – it seemed like when there were problems, they did often cross racial lines. Like it was mm-hmm. often like a black woman and a white woman at having a dispute or something um, or two girlfriends. That would be the other thing is dating sure. in prison caused a lot of the drama in women's prisons. But, you know, I think that the gang structures mean that race is more of an issue in men's prisons Um, But it also means that there's um, a lot more contraband in men's prisons because they have the structures in place to have a steady flow of contraband. Like women don't tend to have a big structure of people that can help bribe the guards to get in cell phones, for instance. Mm -hmm. So there are not cell phones in women's prisons on the same level as there are in men's prisons. I've actually, in all the dozens of guys and all the dozens of prisoners that have reached out to me with contraband phones, none of them have been women.
0: Huh. Okay.
2: There's also, there's drugs, but there's less drugs. And I think it's kind of, one of the things is that because there's less violence and less contraband, and fewer drugs, like the staff end up picking on women or or punishing them for much more trivial things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like they just don't write them up because they're not fighting and and not smuggling in cell phones. They just write them up for contraband makeup or having too many pairs of earrings. And, And there is data to back this up. I mean, my anecdotal experience and my years of reporting would lead me to this conclusion anyways. But there are studies around this, around the fact that women tend to be disciplined in prison for much smaller things, which kind of goes back to what I was saying before about how, you know, in men's prisons, we recognize that they're bad because of the violence. But I think in women's prisons, you know, they can be bad because you're going to spend, like I had a friend who spent 30 days in solitary confinement, lost her parole date, and spent four and a half extra months in prison because of one extra pair of earrings.
0: You know. So that's right, like right. a
2: different kind of like abuse and terror, you know?
0: I guess that, that that brings us to another to another issue, which was your talk at the annual meeting for the State Bar of Texas and and your panel and what you guys were discussing so that that way lawyers in Texas can kind of get a sense of how these issues might affect their clients or affect their cases. Before we get there, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. And then we'll be back with Carrie Blakinger. And we're going to talk a bit about her talk at the annual meeting. The Texas Lawyers Assistance Program provides confidential help for Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who have problems with substance use and mental health issues. TLAP offers 24-7 confidential support and can connect you to peers and providers for assistance. TLAP can also connect you to the Sheeran Crowley Lawyer Wellness Trust, which provides financial help to Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who need treatment for substance use, depression, and other mental health issues but can't afford to pay for services. Call or text TLAP anytime at one 800 343-8527. 343-8527. And we're back. We're back with Carrie Blakinger talking about her work to highlight prison reform and what needs to be done, and also talking about her new book, Corrections in Ink. So Carrie, talk to us about your, your talk at the 2022 State Bar of Texas annual meeting. You were on a panel, and tell us about the panel, and what was, what was your message to lawyers on that particular discussion?
2: I was um, ranting about open records.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, tell uh, was, us about that. What, yeah. what's, what's, what's the issue that we need to be aware of? Because, you know, for a lot of lawyers, we're, we're not familiar with every area of law. So it kind of helps to hear from somebody who's got a perspective on that.
2: Yeah. I was actually surprised um, in my years of reporting. I didn't realize that, that most lawyers don't have to deal with open records a lot. I and didn't realize it until... <laughs> lawyers would reach out to me for advice on open records. Um, And (laughs) you send them
0: an invoice and say, here's $300 an hour. (laughs) That would have been, that would have been justice. But
2: I mean, I have a sort of, you know, I've done a few CLEs on open records and I mean, I have a sort of longer, more nuanced points, but I think that as a, at a minimum, the sort of starting point is. You know, open records are obviously not like discovery. And when Mm. you read the law and you look at what should be releasable, it can really vary a lot. And there's some exceptions that are applied in some ways that are not common sense and, you know, are sometimes very well established and you're not actually going to get around them. So my advice is typically to find some, find someone, probably a reporter, honestly, who puts in a lot of records requests to the agency that you are trying to get stuff from and, you know, and reach out to them. Maybe they have some of the stuff around that you need, or maybe they can tell you what you can actually get and what you can't. Um, And also if you're, you know, if you're, if you're writing, if you're referred, if you put in a records request, the agency refers it to the AG and you decide to write a response letter, the ACLU has written some, some pretty good response letters that um, I, you know, would suggest just like lifting language from
1: because
2: some of those exceptions that are commonly used by some of these agencies are used by multiple agencies. Like they love to say, like one of the common ones is under investigation. That one's kind of hard to object to because you often can't prove or disprove it, but anticipating litigation, that Mm. is one that agencies love to overuse because they'll just say, anticipating litigation when they're they have no basis for saying that and I and the ACLU of Texas wrote a great response letter to um to in in a case where they were trying to get records from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice um Savannah Kumar wrote the wrote the letter and they did a really good job of laying out responses to all of the sort of main reasons Tdcj tends to cite including this um anticipating litigation when they really have no basis for anticipating it Um, So I I often recommend people check out that.
0: So check out ACLU and I guess also look at look at what what successful bases have been used to overcome these objections to disclosure of open records.
2: Feels so random, honestly, like what wins feels Mm. so random. The times that I have gotten that the AG has sided with me have often been times where I didn't even write a letter. Um,
0: interesting. Okay. And sometimes
2: it's the ones that I didn't think I'd win on. Like I didn't write a letter cause I didn't think I'd win. Hmm. And then they side with me anyways. Um, of course, if that happens, the agency can still then sue the AG to prevent disclosure, <laughs> which did happen. I've, that's happened like three times in the past two years that I've ended up, you know, in court after the agency disagreed with the AG.
0: Well, now in the time we have remaining, you know, let's, let's talk about your book corrections in ink. I, I've had the chance to read a quick excerpt about it, but I would love to hear more about what prompted you to write it. And without giving away any of the contents or any of the really, really amazing parts about it, because you're, you're a tremendous writer, by the way. So without talking about all that, you know, what do you want readers to walk away with when they read that book? You know, you, there's probably a message in there, or maybe a couple of messages. What do you want them to know about?
2: Yeah. I mean, I hope that when people in prison read it, that they read it and see someone like them who had a second chance and they know that second chances are possible. And I hope that when people who are not in prison read it, they understand some of the systemic barriers that prevent more people from realizing second chances. Because, you know, one thing I don't want is I don't want people to read it and say, oh, well, she did well after prison. So why doesn't everyone? Mm-hmm. So I tried to take, you know, I, tra- I tried to take great pains to explore some of the systemic barriers that prevent more people from being successful. And, you know, I hope that people understand that when someone does well after prison, it is in spite of prison and not because of prison.
0: Do you think you just got lucky or do you think that there's, there's things prisoners can do to actually make themselves successful when they get out?
2: Well, I mean, there, sure. There's things, you know, you can do, but I mean, some some of it is also about, you know, race privilege, class privilege. You know, I, I think that where you're living can have a big influence. And, you know, there's so little reentry support. I mean, there's there's a lot of things I had working in my favor. And the reality is, as dark as this book is, I've also fully recognized that I had a pretty easy time in prison. You know, I was in a New York women's prison. I was not in Telford unit. I was not in Stiles unit. I was not in some, you know, terrible maximum security prison in a southern state because that's a much worse prison experience. Our prisons in the south here are a are whole different world from some of the, you know, prisons in more progressive states that have been more sincerely invested in creating humane conditions that are actually conducive to rehabilitation.
0: So final question before we close out, Carrie, is with having a prison record and having a conviction, how do you get past that when you're applying for jobs or when you're looking to work with people? Obviously, it's very germane to the work that you're doing. But for prisoners in general, how do they get past that initial barrier of, oh, I've been convicted of a felony, and then people just don't want to hire them?
2: Um, I don't have any advice on that. I know that I have had to apply to more jobs than many of my peers with equivalent experience over the years. I know that 10 years later, I still have a hell of a time finding housing. Wow. Okay. You know, just because I'm successful doesn't mean that I don't face these barriers. I've I've just been incredibly fortunate to, you know, have support and have, have managed to find people that have been willing to give me a second chance. But, you know, finding those people is just it's difficult and not everyone has the resources to get there. So I don't know that I have any um, specific advice on that, but you know, it is, even for me, it has been harder than it might appear.
0: Well, Carrie Blakinger, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us and for explaining your perspective, not only on America's prison systems, but as an added bonus about open records requests. And of course, you know, best of luck with with your book corrections in ink. And I'm sure I'm sure it's going to be wildly successful. And obviously for those who want to, for for those of you who are listening that might want to get a copy of it, Google it. It's, it's, it's riveting. I've, I've read an excerpt and it is amazing. So Carrie, thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And of course, I want to thank you for tuning in and encourage you to stay safe and be well. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off.
1: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes.